Good morning, Grace Point, or good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, whichever one of those is appropriate. We are so glad you're here, especially if you're joining us for the first time. We're officially in the month of February, and February is Black History Month. And here at Grace Point, we're going to honor and observe that theme throughout this month. Uh, you're going to be hearing songs, poems, spoken word, and more from Black artists who are part of our Grace Point family or are friends of the Grace Point community. And creating this space to hear these voices isn't just something we're committed to this month. It's something we're committed to moving forward. Uh, as we continue to move forward as a community that is becoming more and more increasingly beautiful and diverse in so many ways. So um, we're really excited about this month and really, really uh, excited about where we're going moving forward. Um, today, we're going to continue our series around the question, what is progressive Christianity? Um, before we jump into that, I want to remind you that on March 14th, so a month from next week, um, I'm going to be responding to your questions. So it could be questions about a, a, something I said in a sermon or something I didn't say in a sermon. It could be questions about something um, that that hasn't even been touched in any of the sermons. So feel free to, to reach out. Uh, you can email me at josh at gracepoint.net. Gracepoint has an E on the end. Send your questions, uh, your curiosities, and all those sorts of things. I'm looking forward to seeing what's on your mind. I'm looking forward to responding to those uh, on March 14th. But today I want to continue our series by exploring the relationship of the Bible to progressive Christianity. Um, I think we should acknowledge that, that for many progressive Christians, we often have an awkward, even tense relationship with the Bible. We no longer see it as a divinely dictated book that fell out of the sky. We'll have more on that in a little bit. Um, and we can actually, as we read it, we can see that there are some texts that are really just problematic, texts that, in which God is depicted as, as orchestrating multiple genocides. Right? The Bible has been weaponized in dehumanizing ways and used to support slavery, segregation, misogyny, homophobia, and to trivialize the danger of climate change that it poses to our shared existence. Um, actually, on social media a couple weeks ago, I ran across this picture we're going to put up, and it was shared by a friend of mine. Thankfully, this friend was sharing it as like, I can't believe this exists, but it was this picture of the, the Bible. You can tell it's a Bible, but it's in the shape of a gun that's being shot. And it talks about the Bible as a weapon. Now, some of that language is drawn from interpretations of the Bible, right? Um, uh, it talks about the sword of, uh, you know, the sword of the Spirit or something like that, that people assume the Bible is now this weapon to be wielded against those who disagree. The, the reality is the Bible plays, with all of that being true, that the Bible has been used in lots of lots of terrible ways. The Bible also plays and has played a really crucial role in the formation of what we call the Christian tradition. So knowing that that's the case, that, that where we are today has come, has come through generations of people who've been reading and interpreting and responding to the Bible, what do we do with the Bible as progressive Christians? Now, I, I think it's important for me to give a disclaimer before, we, and I give a disclaimer like this every time I talk about the Bible. I am not suggesting that you should read the Bible every day or that you have to engage in the Bible to be a, read the Bible to be a good Christian. For lots and lots of people, the Bible dredges up all sorts of pain, opens up wounds, and maybe right now just isn't the time to engage the Bible in that way. But I always want to say this. If you have grief around the loss of the Bible, like it was a part of your life and then your faith shifted and, and decomposed and something new began growing out of it. And now you have this, this ache because the Bible was once familiar and meaningful and now you don't know what to do with it. If that's you, if you have grief around that, um, if you really wish you could somehow engage the Bible in a way that is intellectually honest and is good for your heart and your soul, then I hope what I offer today is a perspective that might give you a glimmer of hope. 
Um, because I think there are ways to approach the Bible that do just that. Um, I want to begin with this observation from Marcus Borg, the late Marcus Borg, um, who has had such an influence on my own theological development, uh, spiritual development. He wrote this, Conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. Conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. And in my experience, I think he's exactly right. I mean, if we just think about the 30 plus thousand different Christian denominations that exist in the world, my hunch is that it's a pretty safe bet that most, many, if not most, exist because of disagreements about what the Bible is and how it should be interpreted. Right? Understandings and interpretations of the Bible have launched genocides, and they've also spurred selfless humanitarian efforts. It's been used to defend slavery, and it's also been, it also has inspired the work of abolitionists. It's propped up patriarchy and led others to embrace egalitarianism. The list goes on and on and on. The truth is, we can probably find a verse in the Bible to justify just about anything and everything, and that has been all too uh, tragically evident and apparent throughout history. And it doesn't have to be anything, you can just go to social media and see. you'll see that many of the religious arguments that break out on social media, and even the political arguments that break out on social media, ultimately come down to different ways of reading, understanding, interpreting the Bible. Now, before we go any further, I have to confess something. And if you know me at all, this is not going to be a shock to you. But I'm going to say it out loud anyway. Here goes. I love the Bible. I really love it. I love it so much. It has shaped my imagination since I was old enough to have one. So when I, what I'm going to do today, some people may interpret what I'm going to share today as being like I'm somehow anti the Bible. I'm not anti the Bible. I love the Bible. And when I offer context to the Bible or when I offer a critique of something in the Bible, of a, a passage or story, or when I seek to reimagine, reframe, and reinterpret a text, I do not do so as an enemy. I do so as someone who loves and values the Bible deeply. I, I, I don't always take it literally, but I always take it seriously. And I think that, um, so I, I come not as an enemy of the text. I come as a friend, as someone who loves the Bible, but, but also as someone who recognizes the way the Bible, I think, has been misused and weaponized and misinterpreted uh, in ways that have really not opened wide the gates of inclusion and embrace, but have shut down those gates for so many people. Uh, I, I don't think it has to be that way. I do I firmly, fully acknowledge that the Bible has issues. Most of those issues are grounded, I think, in our expectations. The expectations that we bring to the Bible that the Bible isn't intended to bear or even capable of bearing. I think we do that. I think that we come to the Bible with a set of expectations of what it is and what it can do, and a set of expectations about what our relationship to it, it actually looks like. And the Bible just wasn't ever intended or capable of holding up those expectations. And I think part of it has been that like, we want to give authority to a text, right? We don't say the Bible has authority, but if we give all the authority to a text, it almost makes us feel like it absolves us of our responsibility to continue the work our ancestors who created these stories and poems were doing, which is continuing in a journey with God, continuing wondering what does it mean to be human in relationship to the divine? What does it mean to be human in relationship to other humans? What is our place in the world? What does it look like to be a good human being? Right? If we say, well, the Bible has all the authority and we just interpret, we don't interpret it, we just, we just see what the Bible says and we do it, then we're really shirking our responsibility. We're, we're saying that we actually don't want to do the work that's been handed to us by our spiritual ancestors. 
And I think this can be seen in the, hey, hey, don't blame me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says approach. You ever heard that where somebody says something ridiculously offensive and they're like, hey, 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 you can't get mad at me. You got to get mad at God because God wrote the Bible and the Bible says it, right? Like that's sort of, I remember a magnet hanging on our refrigerator growing up that said, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I, you know, that was part of that early memory for me. But I don't think that's how it works. Engaging the Bible should actually inspire us to continue following the long moral arc of the universe that bends toward justice. Because at the close of the Bible, we hadn't gotten there, right? We have seen so many injustices that have been uh, propagated and perpetuated in human history since the Bible was written. And at times the Bible, as we've said, has has been used to prop up and support systems and still today is used to support and prop up systems of injustice and inequity. So there's still work to be done. The moral arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice, but we can't stand back as if it was still the year two or 27 or 30 or 100 and hope that it's going to get there. It takes our effort. It takes our participation to get it there. And I think there are several misconceptions about the Bible that are just embedded deeply into our assumptions about what the Bible is and how it's best to be interpreted. So before we talk about and maybe try to reframe what the Bible is, before we make some affirmations, I want to start with some misconceptions. And one we've already referenced, and it's a pretty widely repeated one. It's this phrase, the Bible says. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say anything. It just doesn't. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible reads. You and I are human beings. We have a worldview. We have biases that we're often not even aware of uh, that determine how we read the text, how we interpret the text, how we live our lives, who we, who we like, who we dislike, who we trust, all of that stuff. We have this, it's like we're wearing, like I'm wearing contact lenses right now that I'm not aware of because they're working properly. And so we all come with a worldview. There just isn't a place we can ever reach where we're so objective and so like step back from the personal when it comes to dealing with the text. There is no place where we can step back and objectively interpret what the Bible says. And I, I live with this. I'm trying to live with this awareness that I, specifically me, a white, straight, cisgender, male Christian in America, that I bring all sorts of stuff with me to the text that I'm not aware of. All sorts of assumptions, because the Bible, for example, wasn't written by somebody who was living uh, and doing well in the most powerful empire the world had ever known. It was written by people who were being oppressed and mistreated by, the, at that time, the largest empire the world had ever known. And so when I come to the Bible, I have a lot of work to do on the front end to begin to even become remotely aware of what might actually be happening in a text. I say all that to say the Bible is not self-interpreting. We have to interpret it. The minute you read a text and say, here's what it means, you are engaging in the act and hopefully the art of biblical interpretation. And so so we, we just need to be aware that this claim saying, well, I'm just saying what the Bible says, is actually a way of trying to limit and shut down honest questions and engagement with the Bible. When somebody says that, well, the Bible, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, they're ultimately trying to shut down questions and curiosity. And I think they're probably doing that because maybe they're afraid that if they think about it too long, they're going to have some questions and curiosities that pop up for them as well. So the Bible doesn't say, the Bible reads, we make it say. Uh, Another misconception, the Bible just isn't a science book. It just isn't a science book. One of the central debates people have had forever about the Bible focuses on the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, 
was the world really created in six days, making it 6,000 or so years old? There's a big boat in Kentucky that wants to tell you that's the truth. Do we have to reject scientific discoveries that point to a much older Earth, to the evolution of human beings from other hominin species of millions of years ago? The truth is the Bible just is not a reliable source for scientific understanding about how we got here and how the natural world works. For example, we're going to put up a picture. If you were to create an image based on Genesis chapter 1 and the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, this is what it would look like. You would have the earth on pillars. You would have sort of the, the sky and you would have heaven above it. The sky has doors or windows through which the rain comes. There's this place called Shale, which is not like an afterlife. It's just the abode of the dead. So they're not active or doing anything. Like this when, when you die, you go to Shale. Um, and, and so it's, it's a very sort of uh, ancient cosmology. It's a cosmology we don't embrace today because we've been up there and we have pictures of what earth looks like and it's not sitting on pillars. There are no windows in the sky. And so that, but that's how the early writers of scripture image the world. Does that make them bad? No, they were just doing the best they could with the information that was available to them at the time. Right. There's also stories in the Bible about, you know, the sun standing still because it was believed that the sun was revolving around the earth. And now we know it's actually not the way it works. Science is more reliable in terms of how. I think science can do a good job of getting at least the closest of anything else to telling us how we got here. But the Bible and our faith tradition are more equipped to speak to why and what now. Right? Scientists, science can bring us into the how. What the area of faith and what, what the area of the Bible, I think, is trying to get at is, okay, we, we're here. Why are we here and what do we do with it? Why do we exist? What does our brief time in this world mean? And, and what do we do? These are the questions the Bible's trying to get to. Uh, another thing, uh, misconception, the Bible just isn't an answer book or a rule book or an instruction book. Um, the Bible does not contain basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the point of the Bible is. Um, the Bible isn't like, and I don't know if this is still how it is today, but um, when I was a, a kid in elementary school in the 80s, we would always, like the teacher would leave the room for something, and we would go up and get the teacher's edition and flip to the back and, and get the answers. The Bible doesn't have, it isn't an answer book. It doesn't give us, often, actually, I think good readings of the Bible should leave us with more questions than they ever do answers. And so the Bible ultimately isn't trying to give us answers. It's trying to inspire us. It's trying to point us in a direction. It's trying to bring up some curiosity and some questions. But when we use the Bible just as sort of a rule book, it really just becomes... Um, legalistic and it actually can hurt people because the point of the Bible actually it's not rules the, the point of the Bible I think is it's trying to call us into a more full generous and compassionate humanity so the Bible isn't a rule book an answer book an instruction book the Bible also isn't the word of God now I know this is probably the most challenging point for those of us who have been told again and again and again and again the Bible is is God's word the problem is the Bible does not claim to be that. Um, the Word of God, in the way it's often translated through, in the, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Word of the Lord in the Bible is actually used in the writings of the prophets to describe the message and passion that the prophets were bringing into the world. And so often a prophetic call story, when, when they sort of get commissioned to carry out the work of a prophet, they have this moment where the Word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that like an Amazon drone flew up and dropped off a package, they opened it up and there's a scroll and they're supposed to read the, this Bible to people? 
No, the word of the Lord was more, it was more charismatic. It was more something, it was the fire trapped in the bones. And it was often calling an unjust people to do justice, um, to, to live compassionately and to care about those around them who were on the receiving end of all the injustices of society. It was a way of talking about the, the source of inspiration, the source of the inspiration of the message they were bringing. So in that sense, the Bible does contain some of God's word in the sense that it contains these stories of prophets who believe they were inspired to share these messages. Um, and in the New Testament, the point actually is not, uh, is that word is always seeking to become flesh. That's the beautiful image John gives us in John 1, where the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, right? This idea that the word is always trying to be embodied. And so the Bible just, just isn't God's word in the sense that it's something that God wrote and drop down into the world. It's actually much more interesting than that. Uh, tell you something else that's much more interesting. The Bible isn't inerrant or infallible. Um, I, I do think the Bible is far more interesting than inerrancy and infallibility. The idea that, for, if you know what this, don't know what those terms means, like the Bible has no errors and the Bible is right about everything it says. Um, reference Genesis 1 in the cosmology, right? Um, the idea that for the Bible to have any sort of authoritative role for Christians, that it has to be this perfect, perfect, pristine thing that has no errors, really misses the point. Actually, part of what I find inspiring about the Bible is that it records different views. And it shows the communities that produce these texts were willing to wrestle, grow, and learn all of the time. I'll give you an example. If you go to some of the various books called wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job, um, what you'll find out is that they are trying to make sense of why things happen like they do. Why do bad things happen? Why do, why do we suffer? And here's the, here's the interesting part. They don't agree on the answer. And I think that's a beautiful thing. There is a space. There is space to grapple with big questions. And for me, seeing our ancestors do that, in, in, essentially in some of their writings in real time, uh, it reminds us that actually this is what an alive and vibrant faith does. It doesn't just sit back on yesterday's interpretations because what if we've been given better information? What if we know something else about how the world works? What if we learn a new thing about what it means to be human? And do we have to keep that over to the side and still hang on to this interpretation? No, no, no. We, we, can, we can transcend and include. We can move beyond. We can appreciate how this belief or practice or, or perspective got us here, but it's not going to get us into the future. And so we have to begin to... to move on and embrace what we've discovered to be truth. There is a space to do that in the Bible. And actually a vibrant and alive faith will do that. So what can we say affirmatively about the Bible? Well, first I would say this. Uh, we can say that the Bible is the product of two communities. Um, the, the, early, or the Jewish community and the early Christian community. Those are the two communities that produced the Bible. And they produced it over time. So Unlike what I believed as a kid, and I really did just as, as like a you know eight year old, this is, was my imagination about where the Bible came from. The Bible didn't miraculously fall out of the sky, leather bound with gilded edges, and the King James because that's what Jesus read, uh, with our name embossed on the front. Um, it was a product of two ancient communities who wrote down their stories and their poems and they wrote letters, never knowing at the time, for most of them, that their writings would ever be part of anything called sacred scripture. The Bible has a context. It is grounded in a time and place. It's grounded in a people who were very much people of their time and place. They weren't living or writing in a vacuum. Their writing was inspired by their own context, by the context of what was happening in the larger world around them. I mean, if you go to the Hebrew Bible, what you're going to find is people writing under the context of threat. 
be it the Assyrians or the Persians or the Babylonians, like any of those people, any of those empires were a constant threat to their life and well-being. And they're writing their stories and poems and letters under that threat. In the New Testament, they're writing it under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And at times during the New Testament, Roman emperors who would just be as happy to use uh, uh, Christians in the arena or um, as torches in their garden to light up their nighttime parties, right? You have these these early Christians who are writing and they're in a very, very different context than uh, you know, I can even begin to get my head around. The oldest parts of, this, of the Bible were written between 950 and 1000 BCE, roughly 3000 years ago. Uh, the final New Testament book to be written, which was probably Second Peter, was sometime in the 120s to 150. Um, so the most recent documents in the Bible are, are a couple thousand years old, at least. So we, we can say that this, this thing we call the Bible was produced by these two communities. Um, it, it was essentially their experiences of God, their experiences of the world, and, and the way they were trying to interpret and make sense of that. Um, we can also say that the Bible is a library of texts. Right? And, and just like any library, it had several different authors, many different authors. It wasn't just by, so we would say the Bible isn't univocal with one voice. It's multivocal. The Bible contains many voices, and it means we should expect to find tension in the Bible as different voices and different texts push and pull against one another. And, and this isn't something embarrassing to be covered up, but actually a gift. So, so one of the ways I was taught very early on when I was a youth is if you find an inconsistency in the Bible, it's actually not an inconsistency. It's just something with you. And it's a temptation for you to not believe what the Bible says, right? Actually, there are. One of my favorite examples is the book of Ruth, which we talked about in Bible Stories for Grownups. But the book of Ruth was written at a time, it's set in the time of the judges, but it actually was written, uh, scholars believe, during the time of the Ezra-Nehemiah reform. So after they came back from exile, there's sort of this response of, we, we can have no foreigners among us. If you're, if you're a, a Jewish male and you're married to a foreign woman and have foreign children, you have to send them away. And the book of Ruth enters the, into the midst of this story and the hero, who is the grandmother of the greatest king um, that Israel would ever know, David, that this woman, Ruth, was a Moabite. She was one of the very people that they were trying to get rid of. And she is the reason David came into the world. The Bible is in conversation. It's many voices wrestling with what, what do we do? How do we, how, are we, how do we be faithful? How do we make sense of suffering? How do we... And, and sometimes their answers uh, weren't satisfying to them, so of course they won't be for us, right? But that's okay. The, the point is to listen to the voices and then begin to add our own voices and experiences to the conversation. And it's not something we need to cover up or be embarrassed about. The, the interesting ways the Bible displays that tension is something we actually, I think, should see as a gift. Um, I also think this. The Bible is a human response to the experience of God. The Bible doesn't have the full and final word about God, about what God is, who God is, what God's like, but instead invites us to keep going and to keep discovering. The experiences of our ancestors were not meant to keep us from our own. Actually, the experiences of our ancestors were meant to, of course, warn us at times. Um, they were meant to inspire us, and they were meant, I think, to push us forward to have our own experiences of God, to have our own experiences of spirit, and to learn and to grow. We, it's almost like so many of us were handed a, a, a faith that had no room for anything other than repeating the interpretations of the past. And in reality, faith is something so much more. And that gets to the next point. I think the Bible is living and dynamic. The Bible doesn't always represent the highest or best way. Right? There are some things in the Bible that if you were to just stop and say, this is the best perspective, then we would be in 
unfortunately, lots of people do this, but we would end up um, supporting all sorts of dehumanizing, unhelpful, catastrophic perspectives. Uh, and, and so this idea that the Bible says everything that needs to be said in the best and fullest way, it's just not true. But I think the Bible does show us the movement. I think the Bible does show us the direction of the ark. Because even in some of the worst texts in the Bible, they actually show small, and, and maybe not all, but in many, they actually show a small incremental movement forward. Not what we would say, gosh, I wish they would have moved like massively forward. But for them in their time and place, an incremental move forward. I think we're experiencing that in our own time and place. There were some things that have been, I think, and many of us here at Grace Point think were misinterpreted and misunderstood. And we have been on this journey of learning and growing in concert with the divine and one another. And we've come up with some alternative perspectives. And that's, that's not unfaithful. That, I think, is faithfulness. I don't think that's not valuing the Bible. I think it's actually really valuing it and taking it seriously is this role and responsibility we have to keep the conversation going. Our ancestors did their part to move it forward, and we are invited to do ours. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when the, the eye for an eye was written and included in the Hebrew Scriptures, it was a dramatic leap forward. That you couldn't just wantonly harm someone. If somebody gouges out your eye, you can't, you can't then chop off their eye. You can only do eye for an eye. If they knock out your tooth, you can't cut off their hand. You can only knock out their tooth. It was essentially meant to limit retaliation and violence. And yet, as we've seen in human history, um, we actually at times will take something that was meant to be a positive and it's sort of, we see how, how far can we lower the bar? So that in Jesus' day, Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said eye for an eye. But I tell you, love your enemies. Right? I mean, this is, Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, this was a massive step forward, but we're not finished. And I would say that, that was a massive leap forward, but we're not finished. We're still going. What, you, what was, in some ways, a leap forward can end up justifying a lot of terrible things if we don't continue the forward movement in our understanding and in our approach. So I, I want to leave with this. I, I, here are a few things I think that for progressive Christians and for, for me, here's what the Bible has been. The Bible connects us to the past. I have increased, as I get older, one of my favorite images of the Bible um, it, it is in one of my least favorite books of the Bible, um, the book of Hebrews, where um, they talk about the cloud of witnesses, that we are essentially running our race before a great cloud of witnesses. And those cloud of witnesses are um, the saints and dear ones who have already completed their race here in the world. And there's something profound for me to think about that all the ways that so many people who have gone before me would have disagreed with my theology, and yet they're still cheering me on. I think the Bible connects us to that past. It connects us not just to the people in the text, but all the people that we have known and loved and valued over the years who taught us the Bible, even if they taught us in ways that we, we no longer hold on to. Um, they were in, in that moment influential. And I think there's this beauty of being connected to the past. To realize that we aren't we aren't the first, we aren't breaking terribly new ground in so many ways. That we're still part of this thing that stretches back thousands of years, that people have lived for and died for, that people have been inspired by, and yes, that some people have done some really terrible things with. Um, and yet, we even need to remember that, so that we remember where this thing could go if we don't continue moving forward. So it connects us to the past. It, I think it challenges us and grounds us in the present. Um, the, the Bible still challenges us. Uh, it, so, some of these texts, which 
we, we want to say, gosh, everything in the Bible is so dated. Actually, some of these texts in the Bible are still challenging today. I mean, this whole idea in the Hebrew Bible of Jubilee, which was, which was meant to make sure that this whole gap between the rich and the poor didn't keep going and going and that people would lose their ability to, to farm their family land because of debt and that would just keep going for generations. Like every 50 years, no, no, every, every 50th year, we're going to have a jubilee. We're going to start the thing over from scratch. I mean, that was, that's a progressive idea and one that scholars say actually was, has never been implemented in the world. But there are things in the Bible, even in the oldest parts of the Bible, there are things that still challenge us things we would resist and push back against, not because they're barbaric, but because they ask too much of us, more than we're willing to give. And so I think the Bible is a way of engaging with the past, being, being connected to the past, but also being challenged and grounded in the present. And then I think the Bible can help point the way to the future for us, in that it shows us the ark. It shows us that there's still more work to be done that there are still, there's still more equity to be uh, created. There's still more spaces at the table that need to be made. There's so much work to be done. And while the Bible may not spell out the work for us because it can't, because the, it was, it was you know, the canon, the last text was written 2,000 years ago, but at least it can give us a little bit of a direction, and at least it can begin to show us a little bit of the ethic through which we seek to engage the world. I mean, ultimately, if, if we take the Bible seriously, we take Jesus seriously, the, the, and, and Paul seriously, the greatest possible uh, gift we can give the world is love. And if we allow love to guide us in our engagement with the Bible and in our interpretation of the Bible, then I think scriptures can actually be helpful to us as we begin to forge a new path um, into the world to do all the good we can in all the ways we can and to leave the world better than we found it. That's why I love the Bible. That's why uh, after 20 plus years of doing this, giving sermons, studying the Bible, I'm still just as excited about it as I was day one, because I believe the Bible actually can, we, we, we can be in tension with it, we can be in critique of it, and we can at the same time embrace it knowing that this, is, this, this represents our cloud of witnesses. And I, I really hope and I like to think they're cheering us on as we move forward and do our own work in our own day to leave the world better than we found.